Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. We'll discuss Democracy with Chinese Characteristics, an essay written by the founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurie Institute, Brian Lee Crowley. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario says three quarters of its members say they have experienced or witnessed violence against staff members. What's being done to try to make it a safer environment? And we'll talk about the federal government's commitment to EV manufacturers. Have they even thought about how they're going to get the minerals out of the ground yet? We're not sure. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get back into this idea about foreign uh, interference in, in our elections, and not just in our elections, but apparently in so many other facets of our life here, too, including ad- academia, business, and so many others. There's a, a very poignant uh, essay that uh, is published about this that talks about the extent to which this is going on and the extent or lack thereof uh, that our government is responding. And uh, it's uh, it's on the McDonald Laurier Institute, by the way. Uh, and the author is Brian Lee Crowley. Brian, of course, is the founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. His uh, most recent book is Gardeners versus Designers, Understanding the Great Fault Line in Canadian Politics. And Brian joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about this. Brian, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's always great to be here. Thank you. Uh, a lot going on here, and, and uh, it's awfully hard to parse this into all, all the things that are going on. But, I mean, there's... There's a theme here that I think a lot of people are starting to realize now they're very troubling about this, is that the world is a more dangerous place uh, than it was 10, 15 years ago. Uh, And I'm not so sure everybody in Ottawa understands that, Brian. Well, uh, I think it's even worse than that, Bill. I think a lot of people in Ottawa uh, understand it and uh, are letting it slide. They are fully aware, uh, no matter what the prime minister says, it's very clear that not only this prime minister, but a whole succession of prime ministers have been briefed repeatedly by our intelligence services about the efforts of China to reach into Canadian society, not just into elections, as you said, but into a broad range of Canadian institutions. And really hardly anything has been done about it. And in fact, you know, all these leaks that we've been seeing in the last uh, couple of months from the intelligence services Uh, are uh, a a sign of the exasperation that they feel. And they've decided, uh, I think, that uh, they're going to reach past their political masters, who clearly are indifferent to what they're saying, uh, and go directly to the Canadian public. And I'm thrilled that this has caused Canadians to become aware of the danger that uh, our intelligence services have been warning us about. The disconnect, and there's a lot of them, I guess, but the one that really seems to jump out at me consistently here is, is as you say, the government seems to not acknowledge this. Uh, I'm getting the sense, as much as information we have here, is our, our security and intelligence sources are, are doing the best they possibly can, but there's a there's a, a, a an information gap here someplace, and it seems to emanate from the prime minister's office. Uh, and as you say, not just this prime minister, I mean, you know, his... Uh, Chief of Staff uh, Katie Telford, of course, testified before the committee a little while ago. But Jenny Byrne, uh, the previous government's uh, chief of staff, also says that we didn't see any of this stuff, too. I mean, it it's, it's boggles the imagination, Brian, that that all of this work is going on. That our, our agencies know that it's going on. They've detailed exactly how it's having an impact on our academia and our industrial complexes here. Uh, and the government just seems to say, well, we never saw that. Who are we supposed to believe here? Well, uh, look, you know, what the uh, what the intelligence services are saying uh, is uh, not just, uh, you know, them saying it, but they are privy to 
uh, intelligence reports that are being gathered in other countries, the United States, Australia, you know, uh, the UK. Uh, and the story is the same everywhere. Uh, there's nothing unusual happening in Canada, as deplorable as it is. I don't mean to say because it's happening elsewhere, we should accept it. But uh, in these other countries, uh, they are also seeing the same efforts by China that's been documented over and over again. Uh, so uh, in terms of who we should believe about the substance, I think it's very clear that the uh, the intelligence services are absolutely on the right track. They have been giving us the straight goods and have been doing so for years. Now, the question then becomes, so if the intelligence services say that they've been briefing the, 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 the political level uh, and uh, those politicians uh, are saying, oh, first we've heard of it, uh, who do we believe? Well, uh, let's take the example of uh, Michael Chong. I think everybody by now knows that uh, Michael, who is a conservative MP and led the effort in the, in the uh, House of Commons to uh, organize that unanimous vote condemning the Uyghur uh, mm -hmm. uh, abuses that are happening in, uh, in China, the attacks on the Uyghur minority. Uh, and uh, the, um, the Chinese decided to target Michael Chong uh, and bring pressure to bear on him by uh, pressuring his family who live in Hong Kong. And um, uh, the, um, uh, the prime minister, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, said, this is the first I've heard of it. These news reports, uh, 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 you know, it's brand new to me. Uh, and then his national security advisor, uh, Jody Thomas, who, uh, you know, she works for the prime minister. She is uh, in the prime minister's office. She is the, at the apex of the intelligence system in Canada, who's responsible for bringing these things to the attention of the prime minister and his, uh, his entourage. She told Michael Chong, I've been telling the, the, the politicians about this for two years. We have been briefed by CSIS repeatedly about this. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's very clear that uh, when the prime minister says, all news to me, I knew nothing about it, uh, we should take that with a rather large grain of salt, Bill. It, it, do they not believe the, 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 the data that they're getting from CSIS and, and other agencies here? Brian, is, is, is that it? Because there, there was a certain naivety, and I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, at, in some circles uh, that, you know, well, China's an emerging economy and, you know, we better be buddies with them because, you know, they're, they're going to have the number one economy in the world really soon. And, and you know, we need that, that kind of trade and that kind of relationship. And we seem to turn a blind eye to human rights violations and some of the other things thinking, yes, that's bad, but absolutely, but we're not going to do much about it because we really don't want to step on their toes. Well, th there is no doubt that a, a, a lot of this is due to the fact that um, people, there are still people who think that China is primarily an opportunity, an economic opportunity, a chance for us to trade, rather than a threat, you know, a, a, a hostile regime trying to uh, uh, damage Canada's interests. Um, but uh, it, it's very clear uh, uh, to me, and uh, I think to the intelligence services, that um, the uh, opportunity that China uh, represents, the economic opportunity, uh, first of all, has been greatly exaggerated. We've been chasing this opportunity for years, and we're still, you know, uh, uh, exporting basically a few commodities uh, to China, things that we could easily sell uh, elsewhere. Uh, and uh, but of course, we are a huge opportunity for China. They're sending us. 
uh, manufactured goods uh, hand over fist. So uh, the, the, the opportunity uh, is more for China than it is for Canada on the economic front. Uh, and the, the, the evidence of uh, Chinese uh, malign intentions towards Canada has only been, has only been growing over these uh, past decades. So I, I think that the Canadian elite that still uh, you know, worries, gosh, we can't af afford to offend China because the economic opportunity is just too great, I, I think they're way behind the times, Bill. Uh, in fact, you know, China has, uh, has been busy taking industry out of Canada, deindustrializing Canada, uh, moving manufacturing uh, to China, not just Canadian manufacturing, but uh, throughout the Western world, uh, uh, as part of a, a conscious effort to weaken Western society, to make us dependent on China. This has been uh, a, an explicit, uh, publicly acknowledged uh, objective of the uh, government of China. And yet at the same time, they say, but we in China must not allow our industries to become dependent on anybody else. They are constantly pursuing you know, independence, uh, you know, no reliance on foreign uh, countries for natural resources and capital and other things. So um, it's, it's been very much a one-way street. Uh, the benefits have flowed to China. Uh, the, 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 the political authorities in Canada have not been keeping up with how this situation has evolved. And I think that, um, you know, the Chinese have used their money and their influence uh, to, uh, in effect, buy the blindness of uh, many of our political authorities. Don't look too closely at exactly what the relationship is between Canada and China. Uh, everything's good. We'll make sure you're looked after. And um, uh, I, I think the result has been uh, the revelations that we've been seeing over the last few months. Well, and as you point out in the piece, uh, what I find troubling, and I think more and more Canadians are starting to come aware, become aware of this rather, is uh, some of the comments, first of all, by the government that, you know, our, this reaction about sanctioning and, and having, uh, you know, registries, et cetera, they say, well, that's, that's a racist reaction to, to the Chinese. And, and when in fact, as you point out in the piece, the reality is the Chinese Canadian citizens are the ones that are being impacted by this. They're the ones that are being bullied and coerced uh, in many instances like this. And, and they, they don't seem to understand that. We're talking about not the Chinese people. We're talking about the Communist Party of China that, that is orchestrating this. And I, I love the, uh, the analogy you used here where... If they had lined up on the West Coast here, you know, with, with their armada of ships and, and jets, et cetera, we would have taken notice of that. But they're not doing it that way. They're doing it with lab coats. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're infiltrating our universities. They're involved in research projects. And they're bringing that data all the way back to Beijing and doing God knows what with it. And, and we just, for years now, have turned a blind eye to that. Yes, I, I, I have to say, Bill, it's, it's really quite a scandalous uh, situation. And um, uh, just to pick up on your um, point about the, um, uh, the foreign agents registry, which is one of the things I strongly recommend in my paper, uh, you know, this idea that it would be uh, somehow anti-Chinese. Well, first of all, as you say, uh, there are many Chinese Canadians who say, please, 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 we need such a foreign agents registry. It's not aimed at Chinese Canadians. It's aimed at people who don't have the interests of Canada uh, uh, at the forefront of their mind, they're pursuing the interests of other countries at our expense. So that, that's one thing. But the other thing is that 
that this idea that uh, uh, such a, uh, a registry would somehow be singling out Chinese Canadians misses exactly the point, which is that there are many people who are not of Chinese origin who are under the thumb of China. Uh, and what the what the registry would reveal is not a conspiracy by people of Chinese origin. It would reveal that there are a lot of people who are not Chinese who are taking money and other benefits from China in order to turn a blind eye to what's going on. So the idea that it is somehow racially based, I think, misses the point entirely. Uh, I wish we had more, much more time to talk about this, but there are a couple of other, I think, very cogent points I just wanted to touch on here. Uh, and that's going forward here, Brian. And I know you touch on that in the commentary as well. Uh, the United States realizes the threat, and, and they've ramped up military production. They've amped up uh, their, their support for Ukraine. Uh, uh, the UK has done the same sort of thing. Australia has done the same sort of thing. Uh, these are our quote-unquote partners. And and as you pointed out, they're, they're looking at us and saying, what are you guys waiting for? Uh, I mean, there's there's a, a couple of concerns there. First of all, our, our international reputation, uh, but more importantly, our contribution to, to to fighting this 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 clear and present danger right now. Uh, I don't know if, if our government even understands it, and they certainly haven't made the kind of commitment that some of our partners have made. Well, it, uh, again, I think it goes even further than that, Bill. I mean, what our partners are looking at is not only that you know, we suffer the same kind of uh, efforts by China uh, to uh, interfere with our institutions, including our elections. But unlike these other countries, we've done nothing about it. They have taken action. Uh, and they look at Canada and they say, well, uh, you know, any self-respecting society that was under this kind of subtle attack by a foreign power uh, to undermine their institutions, uh, any self-respecting country would would react and um, and take steps to make sure that it uh, that it stopped and couldn't happen again. And they look at Canada and they say, "Well, Canada is just as aware as we are of what's going on. Uh, uh, we've taken action; they have not. The only conclusion that we can draw is that Canada has no interest in taking action on this. That they are." perfectly prepared to see the Chinese interfere in our elections, uh, in our universities, in our business uh, uh, class. Uh, you know, the, they don't care if we set up, uh, you know, police stations uh, to uh, harass uh, Chinese citizens living in Canada. Uh, and they say, so if Canada is uh, prepared to live with this, why are we uh, in an alliance with them? We share uh, uh, our intelligence with them about what the Chinese are up to. Uh, we tell them our plans for our uh, development of our uh, defenses against them. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, Bill, our friends and allies are not confident that what they tell us will not find its way to Chinese ears. And I, I, I think Canada has fallen terribly in the estimation of other countries, precisely because we will not stand up for ourselves and uh, have allowed our elites and our institutions to become infected with, uh, uh, you know, uh, a complacence uh, towards China and acceptance of China's ambitions here, which, uh, frankly, our other uh, friends and allies find shocking. I'll uh, direct our listeners to the McDonald Laurier uh, webpage and uh, the the commentaries there in its uh, entirety. Uh, it's a great read and very educational. Brian, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks so much, Bill. I enjoyed it very much.
Brian Lee Crowley, the founder and managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The survey says 42% of the union's members have suffered a physical or psychological injury as a result of workplace violence against them this school year alone. EFO President Karen Brown said in a news conference earlier today that school violence can be traced back to an underfunded and under-resourced education system. Province must provide adequate funding so learning and working environments are physically and psychologically safe. Premier Doug Ford added that students should always respect their education workers. Amy Simon, Global News. Well, let's uh, find out exactly what is going on. Very troubling report about what's going on inside the classroom. And uh, to do that, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Karen Brown, who is the president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Karen, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us. Wish it was uh, under better circumstances, though. Yeah, well, well uh, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Uh, I, I heard the Premier's comments uh, when he was doing his presser yesterday, and this is one of the questions that, that they asked of him, of course. And uh, his short response was, uh, you know, well, students should respect teachers, which is, is a noble thought, I suppose. But there's a lot more going on here, isn't there, that, that needs to be addressed? Absolutely. And we're in, in no way um, blaming, blaming students. Uh, really, what's happening is that the necessary supports, uh, the resources that they need uh, to be successful in school, it, it's not happening. Their needs are going unmet. And, and so they're acting out. They're acting out in, in violent ways. They're acting out their frustration, uh, their, their, their anger, their disappointment uh, in a way that is uh, physically and uh, emotionally violent uh, to our members and, and to the students who are in the class. Talk to us about stress levels. I mean, you know, this report outlines, I think, a very, very incendiary uh, atmosphere in classrooms right now. You've got frustrated students. Uh, you've got frustrated teachers. A lot of the things that the government had promised that they were going to do to try to streamline the education system uh, have not really happened. And, and I'm, I'm getting the sense that there's an awful lot of people right now that are just throwing their hands up and saying, what are we supposed to do here? Well, well absolutely. Our, our report was... was- our report was showing that a lot of our our members were um, feeling uh, quite uh, stressed because of the lack of support. So whether or not they were uh, for themselves going on to because of a psychological Ill, uh, injury or because of an illness b- based on a workplace violence, uh, they were taking lots of time off. They were taking uh, sick leave because of these physical injury. Uh, we know that our our members within the in the first five years were were leaving the the profession uh, in in droves. We know that our occasional teachers were being very selective in the schools that they were going into. Uh, they were saying if environments aren't supportive, if administrators aren't responding appropriately, uh, they're not going into the schools. So they weren't putting themselves uh, uh, at risk for violence, and they weren't going to, uh, uh, you know, undergo that that sort of stress level. So, so people were speaking uh, back and taking action. Talk to us about about that element about time off because that's always seemingly a contentious issue but I mean if you've got a teacher who's been targeted for a variety of reasons and as you mentioned there's a, there's a number of factors that could be at play here uh, a there's an injury b they should be resting and, and there's a psychological aspect to this too uh, when I go back there is the same thing going to happen again well, well well absolutely and so that also plays uh, into the the underreporting, uh, we know that ma- most of our members who have experienced uh, or witnessed a violence, and that's about seventy seven percent of our members, uh, uh, a great proportion of those members aren't actually even reporting uh, that by filling out violent incidents forms. 
They're like, is it worth it uh, to, to do it? Will there actually be any action taking uh, taking an effect? And for our members who um, have experienced violence, we, we have been talking and working through them in regards to uh, the process that they need uh, to do about reporting uh, their right to refuse unsafe work. Uh, it's, it should not be part of a, a normality in the workplace that this this goes hand in hand, and yes, many many are have been experiencing, uh, you know, trauma in regards to will this occur again uh, if they re-enter the classroom? What has changed? Is there a safety plan? What is different? Uh, what's going to help this student be more successful uh, if this trigger occurs the next time? And oftentimes, uh, what members need uh, the the additional supports, uh, the assessment for that student to get the supports uh, are not there. What about you know, the numbers here? I, I, think, I just want to reiterate with our listeners there. 77% of members have personally been subjected to violence or seen it against another member. That number rises to 86% uh, in uh, special education circumstances, uh, which I, I said to me anyway, any sense of red flag up here about, about resources within the classroom. Uh, we've talked about teaching assistants in the past and, and uh, how they are not only underfunded, but there just aren't enough of them. Uh, you know, you get half a day or half an assistant, et cetera. And, and the, the, the need is, is great here. Have boards recognized that? And, and is, the, is the ministry aware of the fact that that's causing added pressure in that circumstance? Well, the the good thing is that, you know, uh, last month the, the government announced uh, ad- some additional funding for violence in schools. But we uh-huh. said at that point that wasn't enough funding. Uh, this The system has been underfunded for years, underfunded and under-resourced. And so what we are experiencing is, in, what we are experiencing is, is that the, the years of depletion. So when you talk about, um, you know, that one educational assistant for the whole school, uh, the social worker for maybe a family of schools, uh, you know, if you're lucky, if you have a child and youth worker uh, to assist that particular student. So the frontline workers are not there. And you might have an educational assistant, but they're not actually providing support. They're putting out fires. So they're they're there responding to to the, the student who's having the violent outburst, as opposed to they have actually have the time uh, to work with them in regards to self-regulation, uh, what to do differently if this happens, those sorts of things to help the student be successful, to fully be able to, to um, engage within the classroom. That time is not there. The, the, the assistant is, is running between classroom to classroom. What's this going to do to recruitment? I, I know that Minister Lecce, the education minister, has talked about more money for hiring more teachers. And, and I know that, you know, that it, there's some people that will question the, the authenticity of a statement like that. But even if it were to happen, it, it, this doesn't sound like an attractive field in which to, to, to dedicate oneself right now because uh, there, there's an element of danger involved in this now with violence in a classroom. Uh, this, this is something that needs to be addressed because of the long-term implications it could have. Uh, absolutely, and we're we're seeing the violence even at a much earlier level. Our designated early childhood educators, who are working in our kindergarten programs, um, have an extreme high incident rate of actual physical force against them. So you're saying, oh my goodness, kids in kindergarten are being violent? Absolutely, and that's because of um, not being properly identified, long wait times to various for assessments uh, for these kids that have just started school. You don't want to identify them early, but you need to have some support so they can be successful. And so um, we're, you know, as I mentioned earlier, within the first five years, we've, we've seen a high turnover. And we know that there's over over 30,000 teachers who actually hold uh, uh, an Ontario uh, 
College of Teachers certificate for teaching who are not actually teaching. And that's be, be, because the conditions, uh, the respect, the resources uh, are, are not there. And when members are feeling that their health and, and um, their physical well-being is in jeopardy, uh, they're highly skilled, highly qualified, and they're looking at other options. Well, it's uh, something the government needs to respond to, and uh, the, including the education ministry. And uh, we can wait and see exactly how uh, they're going to try to address these concerns. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show, Karen. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Okay, great talking to you, Bill. Take care. You too. Karen Brown, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots going on in the business world. Uh, and uh, to comment on this and a number of other issues, uh, pleased to welcome back uh, Ian Lee. Ian, of course, is a, an associate professor at the Brat School of Business, of course, at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. I know that we, I wanted to talk to you about hybrid work and how it's hurting bank profits. And it's an interesting story. But in the last 24 hours, Ian, a, a lot of stuff has hit the fan here. And I wanted to get your yes. perspective on things. First and foremost, uh, the inflation rate is up as of today. It's up only up a tick, but it is up right now. Is 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 that worrisome to us? Um, it is in the following sense uh, that I'm not worried about it. You know, jumping back up to six, seven, or eight, or something like that. I'm not worried about that. But what this means is that this is going to push back the date when we can see interest rates go down. So for those who say I want to see the rate interest rates start to decline, this is going to delay that date because they are not going to put rates down until they, my phrase is, until they put the genie, the inflation genie, back into the bottle at 2% and they've screwed the lid on real tight. And nobody can argue that the genie is back in the bottle when inflation is uh, literally double what the uh, stated, very publicly, repeatedly stated objective of 2% is. So that means we're going to have to wait probably until well into 2024 before we see rate declines. Well, because one of the reasons that uh, that they suggested that the rate went up again, uh, food prices and gasoline prices, and I, I don't see any relief in sight there anytime soon, do you? Exactly. No, exactly. I, I, I think that it's going to, uh, let's leave out energy <laughs> because okay. that's there's so many variables there, you know, Russia and that madman over there and uh, war in Ukraine and so forth. But on the food side, and of course, food is is a heavy user. Uh, agriculture is a heavy user of uh, of energy, of oil and gas. But I do think they're going to come back into balance very slowly. But it's it's not going to be tomorrow morning. It's not going to be in a month or two. Again, I think we're probably looking at uh, probably the end of 2024 before we see it back down, everything back down around 2%, including food prices. And that that is, in fact, what the Bank of Canada itself is forecasting, not to mention other forecasters. Well, another element to this, too, is and just going down the line here, they're talking about housing prices uh, going up, and they have uh, from month yeah. to month, not from last year to this year. Uh, but as long as prices are going up, uh, we're, we're not going to tame this beast, are we? That's exactly right. And uh, it's it's unfortunate because there are different uh, – for me, I, I mean, there, one could say everything causes inflation. But I thought there's in, – in Canada, there's three things I really look at. One is energy. You just can't get around it. We're a huge country, second largest in the world. What's that got to do with energy? It takes a lot of energy to move people and things across the country because the distances are vast. And we're the second coldest country in the world, mean average temperature. And it takes a lot more energy to warm up houses and buildings 
when you're that cold. So energy is one. And the second one are our house prices. And the third is government, unfortunately. And I mean by that, um, the housing crisis, which is, I believe, completely unnecessary. Uh, but it was caused by governments, uh, plural, restricting, especially at the municipal level across Canada. Ottawa, my city, is no exception. So is Hamilton and Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, deliberately restricting the supply of houses on this bizarre idea that if you build more houses, it was contributing to global warming. And uh, it was, and uh, so as a result, we have created these this very serious problem with a shortage of housing, which is driving up prices for everything, including rent. I mean, uh, driving up the prices of homes and uh, to buy as well as rents. So we, uh, th these three problems are going to make it much more difficult to bring inflation down. Uh, one of those elements that you mentioned here was governments and government spending. So uh, that's a nice segue into uh, yep. uh, the other big topic I wanted you to comment on here. Uh, and that, of course, is is the the news yesterday uh, about Stellantis and, and and basically what some people are characterizing as holding the federal government ransom and saying we want we want that yep. same deal you gave to Volkswagen a couple of weeks ago. I, I know we've already signed a deal, but that was then. This is now, uh, and and there's a great deal of pressure on the federal government right now, including from Ontario's premier, to say, yep. yeah, give them the money. Uh, we can't afford to lose these jobs. Uh, give us a your your take on this whole scenario. Okay, and I've been opposed to it from the beginning, and I know people can say, especially mm -hmm. in Southern Ontario, okay, you're not in Windsor, you're in the Ivory Tower in Ottawa, but I am evidence-based, and I mean facts from Stats Canada. So let's put some big-picture stats on the table that nobody is talking about, and this isn't a partisan statement because the Conservative Premier of Ontario and the Liberal Prime Minister are not talking about this. Uh, Andrew Coyne is from the Globe and Mail, but I don't think anybody else is, or very few are. Here's what I want to put on the table. Manufacturing, which back in the when I was growing up, you know, in the 50s and 60s, well, growing up in the 60s, late in early 70s, manufacturing was huge. It was a third, a third of GDP. One in three dollars in the economy was attributable direct or indirect to manufacturing. Fast forward to today, 2023. Manufacturing has collapsed as it has in many other countries, including, believe it or not, Germany and the US. It's down to about 12 to 14 percent of GDP. In other words, manufacturing is far, far less important. Sorry, people in Windsor. I know it's important to you. I know that. But we're talking about Canada. And the government of Canada is represents everybody in Canada, not just one city, not just the people of Ottawa, not just the people of Windsor. And so where I'm going with this is that's the first point. We're talking 2,500 jobs. I looked up the stats from Stats Canada. Right now, as I speak with you, Bill, there are 20 million Canadians working. 2,500 are going to get a $13 billion subsidy. Their employer is going to get a $13 billion subsidy. What about the other 19,998,000 Canadians working for their companies or employers who are not getting a $13 billion subsidy? Surely something is out of whack there. Let's turn to the corporation side. StatsCan says there are 2.2 million corporations in Canada. Corporations. Now, most of them, for sure, are very small. We know that. You know, little small businesses, family-owned businesses, in strip malls, mm -hmm. and so forth. But it's not a question of the size. Why is one company or two companies getting such gargantuan subsidies? What about all the other companies? And I predicted when he, they announced the $13 billion, because it, was, it wasn't because I was clever. It was just so obvious what was going to happen. You give out $13 billion to any company. And the other companies in that industry, 
in it, it in I'm sure about 48 hours are going to say, hey, hey, what about me over here? I'm called Ford Motor Company. What about me? I'm General Motors. What about me? I'm Stellantis. Are we going to give out $13 billion to each competitor? And let's not stop at automobiles. What about Magna? They make auto parts. And why stop at automotive parts? What about all the service companies out there? What about companies that make appliances? What about agricultural corporations? What about banks? What about insurance companies? You see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. It is, it's not a slippery slope. It's much worse than that. It's a ski slope. It's, you, 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 know, you know, gravity, everything runs downhill. And so what I'm saying is what they set, what they established was a precedent and it's going to be very and very badly because every other company is going to raise its hand now and say, hey, you gave $13 billion to Volkswagen. I pay taxes too. My company pays taxes. I'm a good Canadian. I'm a, I am own a company or I work for a company. So what about us over here? But we can't subsidize 2.2 million corporations and 20 million Canadians. And so I think they went down a very bad road. And for those who say, well, are you? what are you going to do about it? We have very quickly before I run out of time, Bill. We, I teach strategy, and one of the questions of strategy is: Does the, the big question is: Does the company have competencies? Does it have a competitive advantage to do what it's doing? And we have had in the a, a, a long history in our country, going back before Canada existed, of a uh, a country where there were people with great skills and competencies in extracting and harvesting natural resources. Indigenous peoples have been doing it from the beginning of time. The Courier de Bois came here to get the beaver pelts and so on. We've had lumber, timber, minerals. And right now there is a desperate demand for critical minerals. And yet the government could be putting money in there where we have competencies. Our mining industry goes back over a hundred years and we have first-class, world-class mining companies. So instead they're putting 13 billion into a company and a product that we have no competencies in. We've never built electric batteries. We don't have an ecosystem in, in automobiles. And for those who say, yes, we do, if you go look at the data, I'm suggesting this to everybody listening, our manufacturing sector has been in autos, has been declining steadily for 25 years by measured as percentage of GDP and also measured as employers, as employees. So what I'm trying to say is we are not a major player in the world. China is, Germany is, United States is. And maybe we should be doing what Australia did. In 2017, they said, look, we're, we've stopped being, we're going to not be blackmailed anymore by automotive companies. No more subsidies. And one by one, they all left Australia. And people said, oh my God, that was terrible. They're going to go, you know, fall into depression or something. Australia today is booming and they don't make a single car. Every car is imported and it has not hurt the standard of living of Australia. We have to focus on what we're best at, and that is not our core competency, not understanding what politicians tell us, because the stats are saying the opposite. Our auto industry is in long-term decline, year by year by year, plants close. You've reported this, others have reported this, and our industry gets smaller, and the only reason that plant is gonna be built is because of a bribe from the government of Canada and the government of Ontario. I don't disagree. I mean, you you really hit this one out of the park. But there's a couple of other things, I, and I know our time is tight here. But so so here they've done this deal with Volkswagen. They're going to try to get this deal with Stellantis, and as you say, Ford and GM are in the wings, awaiting there too. But it's sure. all based on this big push right now for EVs, uh, Ian. 
and we do have some of those products up in the Ring of Fire. A lot of the stuff that they're going to need for those batteries are there. But this government doesn't even have a plan on how to extract those minerals. Uh, no idea. They have not signed agreements with any of the indigenous peoples up there yet. Uh, and there's a big pushback about that. About you know the, that's our land, and, and there's that's that those are our minerals, and th they are years and years away from from drawing anything out of the ground right now. Is, is this whole thing about throwing lots of money at these companies a little premature? That is my point. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. That is my point. I mean, uh, yes, I understand that you got to build cars. I'm not trying to deny that, although I think if you look at the stats, if anyone looks at the stats, increasingly, there's three or four companies where almost all the cars are being made. And we know who they are. It's Germany. It's Japan. It's South Korea. It's the United States. It's China. And all the rest of us are wannabes. So sorry, people. I can speak truth to power because I don't consult anybody and I'm tenured. We are second-rate wannabes. We are never going to become an automotive manufacturing powerhouse. However, we have critical minerals up the wazoo. And yet our governments are doing, I mean, they've got, there's so much red tape and it's being condemned by the mining industry. It takes years and years and years and years to get the permits and the approvals, et cetera, to open a mine. And yet the minerals, if you don't have these critical minerals, and I'm talking copper, not just lithium, the government of Canada has actually identified 24 separate critical minerals. That's far more critical. The critical minerals are far more critical to making cars than building a plant that builds ba batteries or assembles the car. And yet they're fixated on the manufacturing when they should be fixated on we've got to extract these minerals. We have a huge competitive advantage compared to most other countries in the world, partly because of our sheer size, second largest country in the world after Russia. And we should be moving, putting, if we want to subsidize anything, we should be moving heaven and earth to say we've got to develop the ring of fire. We've got to build roads. We've got to negotiate with indigenous people. And, and both governments are sound asleep at the switch on this. If you talk to people or less read about what's going on in the mining industry, they're just tearing out their hair. They said, we're years and years and years away from getting those critical minerals out of the ground that are essential, not just to cars, Bill. I mean, copper, there's a huge shortage in the world of copper. And it's critical to decarbonization because electricity runs on copper, people. We need a lot more copper. So we should be talking morning, noon, and night, Mr. Trudeau and uh, Mr. Ford should be talking about the mining industry. How are we going to get these critical minerals buried down in the earth in far off remote locations and parts of Canada? How are we going to bring it up to the surface and then smelt it, refine it, and then ship it to where it's needed by factories? And they're not even talking about this. And this is far more important to, de uh, to develop those critical minerals than it is to talk about a battery plant. Uh, a little dose of reality. I think uh, they, they could use that uh, in the halls of uh, the parliament buildings just around the corner from your place there, Ian. Yes. As always, thank yes. you. Thank you so much for this. Always great to have you on the show, Ian. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, is an associate professor at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. And, and these are all legitimate points. You know, it's great to have the photo op and the here's we're going to cut the ribbon and here's the check and everything like that. But uh, the raw materials are a key part of this, and they, they just seem to know how to address that problem. And uh, I know the premier talked about that and said, well, we're going to build a road up there. Well, that's, that's nothing. It's still on the ground. And there's a lot of work yet to be done on that. 
but uh, it's it's heavy lifting, and I don't know if the government's got the wherewithal to do that right now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.